We've been watching the show Domino Masters as a family. If you haven't seen it, it's basically exactly what it sounds like. Teams of what the show calls chain reaction artists build elaborate domino runs complete with towers and pyramids and these giant picture fields plus like non-domino elements of zip lines and catapults, rings of fire and, and electromagnets that shoot out ping pong balls. It's incredibly entertaining. And it's also reawakened in me this fascination that I had as a kid for Rube Goldberg type contraptions, like the one that makes Pee Wee Herman breakfast at the beginning of his big adventure. I remember tying a string to the center of a turntable, maybe in like the second grade, and trying for hours to devise a system of pulleys and GI Joes that would somehow make that very weak motor open my bedroom door. Which, when I failed, I realized was a task I wasn't really having a hard time with anyway. That's the thing about those machines. They find incredibly complex ways to do relatively simple tasks. To open a door, or to make toast, or knock down that final domino. These teams, they, on the show, they work for 18 hours just to do that, to build something elaborate that they could do with just the push of their finger. My spiritual life looks that way sometimes. Of these four types that we've been talking about, I come out as the spirit or mystic type. I led a small group this winter to in introduce people to the practice of centering prayer, and that's how I most often pray myself. And when I do, I want the conditions to be just right. Usually I come down here into the sanctuary early in the morning before anyone else is in the building. When it's completely quiet, I sit about halfway back, right where you are, Ryan. Very holy spot. I take out my phone and I open the Centering Prayer app and I double check the customizable prayers that it offers me and I make sure the timer is set for the full 20 minutes and I take my phone off silent so that I can hear its little singing bowl effect that tells me when to start and stop. But I also check the volume because as our group will tell you, if it's up too high, it's a terrifying way to end your silent meditation. <laughs> I see Scott nodding in agreement. And when everything is just the way it needs to be, then I can settle down and pray. And frequently, incredibly, miraculously, after all that, God shows up, like that last domino in the chain. And the only problem with that is that if one piece is out of place, if I have less than 22 minutes to pray, or if I wait too long in the morning and someone else is banging around in the building, or if my phone doesn't have enough power, or I forget to take it off silent, or if it's too loud, or the sanctuary is too cold or too hot, or I have anything at all distracting me, if it's not absolutely silent, if, say, there is masonry work happening directly between my home and office for a solid month, if any little link in that 
chain is missing along the way, then the whole thing is broken. And I tell myself, I can't really pray this morning. And sometimes I think there's probably a simpler way. This scripture is the first one I ever preached on in div school. I picked it out of a literal hat on the first day of preaching class. And I studied it probably closer than I have studied any story before or after. I only asked Amanda to read part of it because it's pretty long, but I figured I'd just tell the rest to you. So So the story begins, as you heard, with Jesus surrounded by this big crowd. And into the middle of it bursts one of the leaders of the synagogue, panicked. His daughter is sick, is dying. But he has a plan. He's come to find Jesus and and beg him to follow him through the crowd and back to his home and up to the girl's room where he can do whatever it is he does to heal all those other people. He explains the plan and Jesus agrees and they start back to the house, winding their way through the crowd But somewhere mixed in with the rest, kind of unseen and unnoticed, is this woman who's been sick for 12 years. She's been bleeding for 12 years. and No doctor has been able to help. And the story doesn't say that she was looking for Jesus. She may have just been, like, trying to go about her day when she got swallowed up by this crowd. But she sees Jesus, and fighting through all those bodies, she sees that terrified father dragging him behind, she says to herself, if I reach out my hand and just touch the edge of his robe, I will be healed. And she does it, and that's what happens. And Jesus notices and stops and talks with her and compliments her on her faith, but in the delay, people come from the leader's house and tell him that his daughter has died. The plan has failed, and he's distraught. And his friends jeer at Jesus for getting interrupted, for not understanding the urgency, for not being able to do what he's supposed to be able to do. But Jesus just keeps on going with the plan. He makes it to the man's house and up to the girl's room, and he reaches out and he takes her hand, and she gets up, alive, and well, just the way the leader had planned it. I read that story over and over again that week and and read all the ones before and after it, and I, I looked through every commentary I could get a hold of, trying to see, like, what I could come up with to wow my professor with. But what I ended up coming up with was something very simple. What I noticed was that they both get healed. Two sick people, both made well. And and both made well in the ways that they expected. One believes that if Jesus follows his plan and comes back to his house and lays his hand on his daughter, she will be healed. And he does, and she is And the other believes that all she has to do is reach out and brush the hem of his garment, and that will be enough. And she does, and it is. 
And as I read on further, what I saw was that Jesus heals lots of people in lots of strange ways. One, he spits in the dirt and rubs it on someone's eyes. And another, he holds their tongue and makes them say this nonsense word. And for a third, another parent of a sick child, one who must be too far away to walk to, or whose parent didn't think they could convince Jesus to come with them, Jesus simply says the word, and that child, wherever they are, is well. I noticed that people devised all kinds of elaborate and complex systems for connecting to Jesus, and whatever plan they concocted, he seemed kind of more or less happy to go with it, to put mud in their eyes if that's what they thought would work, or, or have their friends lower them through a roof, or follow them across town through a sea of people, or like the bleeding woman, she doesn't have the energy for all that. She just reaches out the tip of her finger to the fringe of his clothes, and he's there. I think she's the heart type. A couple of weeks ago, Rebecca preached about how the spirit type, our type, is on the side of the graph that understands God as a mystery, as one we can never fully know, something or someone hidden to be contemplated. The heart type lives on the other side of the graph, holding the equal and opposite truth that God is revealed, that God can be known, touched, and felt. For the heart type, faith is about relationship, the relationship to other members of the community and the way that shows us God and the relationship to God directly, often in the person of Jesus, that God can be related to, spoken to, and followed, and trusted, and loved. Each of these types holds a truth that the others can lose sight of. They remind the others of something they might otherwise forget. And for the heart type, that truth is that immediacy of God. God's presence and accessibility and nearness in every moment. When the head type says, I'm, I'm learning ancient Hebrew so I can read God's word in the original language, the heart type says, why not just listen to one beautiful piece of music from Yasko and Nick and hear God's voice for yourself? And when the hands type says, we're organizing a three-year campaign on this issue to move the world a little closer to God's beloved community, the heart type says, why not just love the neighbor who's right beside you and create that community in an instant? And when the spirit type says, I'm practicing a new form of contemplative prayer that I hope will lead me closer to dwelling in God's presence over many years of practice, the heart type says, why? When all you have to do is just open your mouth right now and God will hear. When the other types say, look at these complex plans that we've put in place to connect to God, and if we follow the steps just perfectly, then frequently, incredibly, miraculously, God shows up. The heart type says, why not just reach out your hand and touch God in this moment? They could not be closer. 
For a long time, I've known what tattoo I would get if I got a tattoo. I've even sketched it out a few times, not well enough that I've taken it to anyone. It's an image and words that come from a story of the Desert Fathers, these monks back in the 4th and 5th centuries who fled the violence and opulence of the Roman Empire to live simply in the wilderness of North Africa. And you probably heard me tell this story before, but what can I say? It's a favorite, enough to consider putting it on my body. In the story, one of these young hermits comes to an older, well-regarded brother. And he says to the older man, I, I keep my little rule, I observe my fasts, I study scripture, I live alone in my cell. What more should I do? And the older one stretches out his fingers, and they become like ten flames. And he tells the young one, why not be utterly changed into fire? It's a story that speaks to me, that sparks something inside me. I draw and redraw those fingers combusting. I write and rewrite that question, why not be utterly changed into fire? Be set ablaze with passion and fervor. Let yourself be consumed by the creator of the universe. Burn it all down and be renewed by holy fire. Which is exactly why I have not put it on my body yet. I'm not that guy with flames running up his arm, like with a challenge written on his skin for everyone he meets. I would feel kind of confrontational just people seeing that on me and reading it, let alone having that conversation with every last person. I could never stare steely-eyed into a stranger's face and deliver that line with a straight face. I'm not the guy who's utterly changed into fire. I'm the guy watching Domino Masters with his family. I'm the guy setting out his elaborate chain reaction, each piece right where it's supposed to be, the building quiet, the phone charged, the ringer low, the one with the little rule, the fast. I'm the one with the plan, making God follow along, jump through all the hoops, and surprised and delighted that God does. But this week, for the first time, I realized something about this story that I've been telling and retelling myself for years. That's exactly who it's for. The story is not for the one whose fingertips can magically ignite, but the one who is tying a string to a G.I. Joe to try to connect to God. That's who needs it, inked indelibly on their skin, and it would be really cool if I, like, opened my shirt right now and it was there, but it's, it's not. I've had COVID. It's not for the one that you expect to see flames running up their forearm. It's for the other one, like me and maybe like you. The ones who need to hear that reminder again, you're making it too complicated. You're putting so many obstacles in the way, so many rules, so many conditions, but it's really very simple. Just make the toast 
just open the door, just reach out the tip of your finger. God could not be closer.